Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. Mask mandates, education, the overall economy, North and South Carolina state budgets. How does all this unfold this week? I'm Chris William, and welcome again to the widely watched and longest running program on Carolina business policy and public affairs seen each and every week across the states here for almost 30 years. In a moment, we will start our dialogue, and then later she joins us again. That is the Secretary of Education for the Palmetto State, the Honorable Molly Spearman. And we begin now. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, healthcare, rural churches, and children's services. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Dan Gerlock, owner-manager of Dan Gerlock, LLC. Dean Fail, president and CEO of the York County Regional Chamber. And special guest, Molly Spearman, South Carolina Superintendent of Education. Welcome to our dialogue. Dan, Dean, good to see you both. Let's, uh, let's unpack this. Let's get in, into this. Dan, um, long session in North Carolina around the General Assembly. It's about money, but is it about money? There's a, there's a lot of money sloshing around in the budget. So what does it come down to now, and when are we going to see a budget? Well, I think we're going to see a budget, Chris, at the end of September, early October. I, I think the uh, President Pro Tempore, Senator Berger, and and House Speaker Tim Moore have come to agreement on kind of the overall goals. They've been regularly consulting with Governor Cooper and hope to get to a three-way agreement. I think all parties agree on that. So the end of, end of this month, maybe early next month. The, the issue is that there's a lot of money around and so the Senate would prefer to give that money back to the taxpayers through tax, meaningful tax relief and uh, phase it in over time and replenish the state's reserves. I think the House sees an opportunity to use some of this money that may not be maybe one time of one time occurrence to make necessary investments in, in physical and education infrastructure back home. And the governor has an interest in Medicaid expansion and education. And the good news is it's not a scarcity of money. It's, it's more of uh, if everybody can get a little bit of what they want uh, to help move North Carolina forward. And it's, it is a good problem to have that kind of budget surplus. Just quickly, you said the, the governor, not surprisingly, is in uh, favor of Medicaid expansion. Does that ever become a reality in North Carolina? Will he get his way? Well, I don't know. I think it's a matter of whether or not North Carolina uh, sees that it's ready for this. I think uh, they've transformed the Medicaid program in North Carolina under Republican leadership. Uh, there's an opportunity to, for the federal government to put more money into the existing program which provides some substantial financial incentives that weren't there before for uh, the General Assembly to consider it. So I think if they are going to consider it, uh, Chris, it's going to be, it's going to be now. Mm -hmm. 
All right, Dean, we haven't forgot about you. Let's bring you into the dialogue. Not going to ask you about budgets in the state house, but I would like to highlight something. Um, Senator, uh, Secretary of Transportation Christy Hall from South Carolina was on our program in the last couple of months and is riding a wave of popularity. And I, and I don't mean it's a popularity contest, but she is well-respected and well-liked across South Carolina. The American Society of Civil Engineers recently released a report giving South Carolina a D plus in infrastructure. That goes to the heart of transportation and issues around transportation. Two questions. Is that surprising to you that South Carolina has been intentional about infrastructure and transportation and they still get not a failing grade, but not a good grade nationally? And what would what are you hearing from uh, DOT about infrastructure? Well, you know, it's a great question. And no, it's not surprising. We had a long way to go. And, um, and Secretary Hall has done a great job and she's put together a great plan. I mean, she, you know, she's got a, a, a 10 year plan on improving bridges and roads. If you unpack that study while we received a D, Bridges actually got a C. So we're actually making headway. We're four years into that 10-year plan that she's put in place, you know, looking at the asset management plan. And, and so that's an improvement. So there's some positive takeaways there. Um, you know, the General Assembly passed Act 40 in 2017 that raised our gas tax by 12 cents over six years. Um, that's given us an infusion of additional funds. And so with that, with her 10-year plan to utilize those funds, um, we're moving in the right direction. Now, you know, a D is still a D, and that's not good. And I think that really kind of highlights that the General Assembly's work's not done. We've got to look at what else we need to do, um, not only with funding for those infrastructure needs, but accountability. Make sure that, um, that we're continuing to utilize those funds in the right way. Let me ask you both one final question, then we're going to bring the superintendent of education from South Carolina in. Uh, Dan, uh, you, you, know, you talk about having North Carolina having a flush budget again, uh, billions, actually. Yes. South Carolina is not far behind that with a very flush budget as well. Does an economic slowdown change all of this? Would that be, would that be a, a real liability if the economy did slow and all of these things that we've watched in markets and residential real estate and commercial development? What if that went south? What would happen? Well, Chris, obviously, if the economy goes down, that's not a good for either of us. But, but comparatively speaking, the strength of the Carolinas, I mean, part of the problems with our infrastructure is that we have so much growth. And uh, we're trying to accommodate that in both of our states, and, and we have to pay and invest, and but states are serious about doing that. But I think we're relatively better positioned than most to take advantage of this. I mean, uh, where you see some softness in last month's report was on our hospitality industry. But, you know, the beaches at North Carolina side at least were full, and uh, I think we didn't have the catastrophe that we thought. So the leisure and hospitality industry, the, the, uh, any industry where people have to be, interact in person, that's got to come back. And uh, But I, I think the Carolinas are, are better positioned than most to handle it. So sure, nobody wants a recession, but but why yield a Dean on this? I think we'll be better. I, I, I yeah, I absolutely agree. I think both states are poised well to handle any particular downturn. You know, I, I think the other thing that's important is with our growth, and while that's been a challenge, you know, that's helped us to kind of meet those talent shortages that a lot of other areas of the country are experiencing. So that's continued to have business continue to look to Carolinas to move here. So um, so I don't think that we would have nearly the downturn that other areas of the country that would experience if we saw that. 
Gentlemen, thank you. It is hard, uh, and she has been introduced countless times like this, so I want to be careful about overstating it or understating it, but it is hard to find someone who is more built for education than our next guest, not new to our program, not new to public face of education. She has a master's in arts education. She was a classroom teacher for 10 years. She was an 18 years. She was an assistant principal. She was uh, uh, on a, 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 a legislator. Uh, to try to list all of her attributes would be very difficult to do. Let me just welcome the honor, honorable superintendent of education in the Palmetto State, the honorable Molly Spearman. Uh, Madam superintendent, welcome again to the program. Nice to see you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I guess the biggest question is how critical here at the beginning of the school year is it for you and your colleagues in education, madam, to get it right? And what does getting education right following the last 18 months mean? Well, we've learned a lot um, and we're working very hard to get it right. Number one for us is always safety. Make sure that we have a safe environment for our students, our teachers and staff. And then to do what we always do to ensure that every child is getting the best support that they need to meet the profile of the graduate, which is that they're ready for college career and to be a good citizen when they graduate. So it's been tough. Um, we thought it was gonna be more normal this year, but obviously it is not. So the challenge I would say is even greater this year because we do have some constraints uh, on how we're able to keep children safe at school. We're going to we're going to unpack this a little bit more, obviously, going along and I'm going to open it up. But what's the morale like internal, in, not just schools, but in DOE and in, in, in on your team? Well, I met last week with our state superintendents, our district superintendents across South Carolina. Uh, I talked with teachers, principals every day, and I would just say everybody is exhausted. Um, a young principal yesterday called me who said and she was in Rock Hill, by the way who said, I've had to deal with COVID more in the 17 days that we've been in school than I did the entire year last year. Nurses uh, are feeling overwhelmed. Many of them are leaving their jobs. Um, it's just the morale is, is low. It's optimistic always. Teachers are the most flexible people in the world and they want to do a good job. They're working so hard to serve every student. But I will tell you, it, people are exhausted. Uh, patience is running thin. And uh, I've never been more concerned about the education community than I am at this time. Dan, why don't you start off? Thank you, Madam Superintendent. The federal government has come through three tranches of money to help the K-12 school systems uh, throughout the country deal with this. As, as these school systems receive that, that money, what are the kind of the things that seem to get the best value uh, for helping these children, especially those most at risk during the pandemic? What, what, what kind of advice are you giving your, your districts? What, what we have done, uh, there've been three rounds of funding. Uh, the first round really went more to purchase the safety equipment, the paraphernalia, the masks, the cleaning supplies, so the technology that we needed. So that was well spent. We're monitoring it very, very closely. And for us in South Carolina, at least, most of that money has been drawn down and spent by districts. The second and third pot are really more focused on the academic loss, or we like to call it 
accelerated learning. <laughs> really, if you've never experienced the instruction, you have you don't lose it. But our children just need to get accelerated instruction. So what we're seeing, and we had every district write a plan, their academic recovery plan, and we're reviewing those plans to make sure that they're matching their dollars to fix the issues. And of course, that's learning loss, accelerated learning. We're doing that through hiring more tutors, uh, buying a curriculum that is more focused, prior, reprioritizing our standards, uh, having after-school program, extended summer school programs. Many districts did that this past year. You'll see them doing that again next year, making sure that we do have the broadband accessibility. That was a huge issue. And across the region, we have improved the accessibility so much. We're not quite there yet, but uh, I think all of us, uh, the districts, the state, and even the funds that our governors have had are going to broadband expansion. Um, social emotional support uh, is a huge issue. And uh, we're making sure that our teachers have the resources that they need and that we're working with our students to make sure that they have the resources, that they have someone to talk with about how they're feeling. And um, so there, there's so many things that we need to do. So our focus is really on monitoring and advising the districts to make sure that they are using all of these federal dollars appropriately. Dean? Yeah, Molly, let me, let me ask, Madam Spearman, along with that, we had a lot of students who really kind of had the COVID slide. I mean, we see it in summer when they, they, you know, they don't perform as well. You know, the virtual learning for some students, it worked. For others, it didn't. You know, how long is it going to take and what is the district, your strategy to make sure that our districts kind of get our students caught back up? I mean, is that a, a year, two, five years out? How long is that going to take? Well, you know, I think that's looking in the crystal ball and it's hard to really say exactly, but I can tell you this from the assessments that we've done and we did those throughout the pandemic last year through formative or interim assessments. I think we got better information from those assessments than we did from our end of the year summative assessment, uh, which is very broad. But those very personal interim assessments let us know where students are. And what we have found is you're right, our A and B students those that have the resources at home, those who are really motivated, they held their own. The C and lower students are the ones that, who really struggled. And we saw grades slide. We saw courses not passed in high school. So we had to offer more virtual opportunities for students to get the coursework they needed to graduate. Uh, we did a lot of credit recovery in high schools to make sure over the summer and at the beginning of this year that those high school students could get those credits under their belt. For our elementary students, uh, what we have seen is third grade was the most affected. That's the first year that we test with a summative assessment and our third graders showed the greatest lag. Uh, so we are really focusing and it was kind of surprising. It was in literacy and reading, but more so in math. So we're having to really give math manipulatives, um, interventions. Most districts have hired extra people to come in and work with students in math and the struggling readers. They're doing that during the school day and then also after school. But we never imagined that we have schools now that are not able to go face to face. What we did learn, and you're absolutely right, students, majority, there may be 
shine virtually. But generally speaking, students need to be in the classroom face-to-face -face with a teacher. And that's the unknown right now. We had planned that this year, uh, our students average three to four months behind. That means many excel. Some students did better than ever. And then those struggling students who were already behind are even further behind. Yeah. So I, I'm really concerned about those young people. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I do want to come back. You said in a recent press conference that you were concerned and alarmed. And as you just talked about, Madam, the, the idea that third grade, especially what I find curious is the third grade um, performance of students was also highlighted in these past few years by corporations to say, if we can improve those third grade reading scores, then we're going to be more successful eventually when, when, when children graduate. What is it about third grade? Is there something else about third grade that you're concerned about or how does that all play out? I'll tell you my greatest concern. Our struggling learners, generally those are children who live in poverty, whose parents may not be uh, as highly educated, who don't have the resources at home. Those are the students whose schools closed first, uh, whose children went home virtually because quite honestly, uh, the African-American community, the Hispanic community were hit the hardest. COVID seemed to attack their communities more than others. Those are the very students whose families chose to keep them home virtually or who now are having to go virtual. So we don't have a, a teacher sitting beside those children like we so desperately need in first, second, and third grade. Um, so that, that's a huge concern. They were the children who didn't have access to Wi-Fi, uh, that we had to take hotspots out to. Maybe the hotspots worked, they didn't work. So that is the, the biggest flaw, I think, of, of across the board, but particularly in third grade. And third grade is, um, if we don't have those children in good, strong early childhood programs, four-year-old, five-year-old, it scaffolds, it builds up as they learn. And when that was interrupted in March of, last year and then started in their entire year. That was the ending of their kindergarten year. And then those first graders coming in for last year who were not able to be in school. Uh, it's gonna take us a while to overcome this, uh, whether it's a year or two, I don't know, but I do know this, it has to be accelerated and we really have to prioritize the learning, making sure that our teachers have the curriculum that those students need. And what we're finding in, in South Carolina, and I know it's true across the country, generally those students need a very, very strong phonics program. And many of our states were not equipped with that. So we are doing additional professional development to get our teachers prepared so that they can work spot on with those children who struggle. Dan. Well, thanks for that. And I think as we come out of the pandemic, one thing that Carolinas both face is this idea of like, our economies have recovered, but not everybody has gone back to work. A lot of concern about, about the business community. Dean, I know you're hearing this about not enough workers. As we emerge out of this, the longer-term issue for our states is going to be how do we make sure the workforce, all of us, are prepared. And you, you, you know, it starts with uh, the group you work most with, Madam Superintendent. What's your thoughts on how to improve that going forward? Well, I had an interesting conversation with a uh, uh, industry Zeus industry in down in uh, Orangeburg, South Carolina, just yesterday. They have uh, they have facilities all across the Carolinas. Um, several things. Number one. We have to communicate with each other 
and we have to continue. We've been doing this for a while, but we have to make sure that our educators, our teachers understand how wonderful manufacturing, how the jobs, the careers that are available. They don't often know that. And that's by you all inviting them into your facilities, getting to know what it looks like, what you need, and then us continuing to educate students, their parents and grandparents on the wonderful careers that are available. A lot of folks still think of manufacturing as the old textile mills, you know, pretty dirty facilities, uh, not that great of a salary. So it's about communicating all those good things. For us, also it's about us having a very good uh, dialogue evolving on what are the jobs that are available? What kind of workers do you need? And us being sure that we evolve our curriculum to meet that need. Working very carefully with our technical colleges, our four-year institutions, that there is a smooth transition across. And by the way, we are using some of our federal ESSER funds, the pandemic money, to work with uh, Department of Workforce Development in South Carolina and also with our technical colleges, adult ed, helping adults make sure that they've got their GED, high school diploma, and that they continue that by simultaneously working on a credential at a technical college. So there are lots of things that we do, communication and understanding each other's needs is, is uh, key. Mm -hmm. Dean. Yeah, a follow-up question to that, Madam Spearman. With um, the South Carolina with the IGP program, the career clusters do a great job of help helping students kind of get career oriented. But um, do you feel like we're lacking in then making that final connection to our local businesses? I mean, you know, they're picking a career cluster, but not necessarily identifying those jobs that are local or regional that those students might can attain. Do you have any strategies that you're looking at that might help us connect those dots better? Well, absolutely. I A couple of things, and I always share this because, you know, I live in Saluda County, which is a very rural area. We don't have a lot of industry located right in our county. So our citizens drive 30 to 50 miles for employment. So the first thing I say to any uh, business folks is, you know, don't think about just your local high school or your local school district. Broaden your uh, communications out to probably a 50 mile radius and work with all of those school districts to communicate what you need. Inviting the students in uh, to take a tour, inviting teachers, parents in, because your employees don't just live 10 miles away. <laughs> They will need to drive. And those folks, uh, there's some great uh, potential with young people out in those areas. So broaden your, uh, your communication area that you work with that you support. Those schools need support too. And sometimes they don't have any industry to support them. So they will be very happy to communicate with you. And again, just a clear understanding. Uh, I think we need to do more uh, public service announcements. We need to do more videos, more brochures, information for young people to know what's available. And then uh, the Future Makers uh, app that we have started uh, in South Carolina and it's broadened across the region, I know, of where high school kids actually go online and it's sort of the high school link in where they say, here's the credentials that I have obtained and businesses can join that and recruit those students just like uh, an athlete might be recruited. So I think those are a couple strategies, but always it's communication. Uh, us understanding you, you understanding us and working together. 
Your, Your Honor, we have two minutes left and there are two big issues that we haven't gotten to. I'm going to ask you to shoehorn those into two minutes, and I know these are big and have a lot of hair on them, if you will. One is uh, the battle for masks to wear or not is doesn't seem to be abating, and the second one is teacher pay and retention. But I want to start with the masks thing, and that is the General Assembly in South Carolina has compelled by law uh, a ban on masks in schools. How distracting is that? How much does that work against policy? And then the second part is teacher pay and retention. What would you do about that? Well, unfortunately, the little cloth mask or paper mask has become way, way too political. And I have been very vocal in saying that I believe that it should be handled on the local level. The courts will decide that very soon, I think. Um, but we we got to do everything to keep our children safe. And to be quite honest, there's six mitigation tools. We can we're using all of them now except one. And I'm very concerned that we need to do all of those things. So I'm watching to see how the courts are going to rule, working with the legislators to ask them to please rescind that order mm -hmm. and allow schools to do what they need to do. And asking families, let's calm down. Let's calm down. It's gotten way too tense. And let's just agree that we're going to do everything we can. It may be temporary. Let's try it for, give us the opportunity to try it till December or whatever. But we are not doing everything that we possibly can do. And I would like to see us have that tool in our tool basket. As for teacher pay. And you have less than that. Uh, teacher pay, we did a $1,000 bonus this year. That's still not enough. We're, we are at the southeastern average in South Carolina, That North Carolina also. We need to continue with everything we can do. Salaries have to increase. Um, I'm going to be asking for a salary increase in South Carolina. I'm sure that will happen in the North Carolina General Assembly as well. Uh, it's been it's getting harder and harder to recruit people. And all of this tension uh, around safety is making it harder to recruit and retain teachers as well. So we all need to calm down and focus together and work together to make it a, a safe environment and support our teachers. Uh, Your Honor, thank you again. Thanks for your leadership. Thanks for being a guest on our program. Uh, I know you'll stay safe and I know your team will as well. So best of luck going forward and good to see you again. Thank you. Uh, Dan, nice to see you. Thanks for joining us. Dean, welcome to the program. Until next week, I'm Chris William. We hope your weekend is good. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, the Duke Endowment, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.